You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 Network. You're listening to episode 353 and I'm your host, Brittany Martin. Tim Riley is a longtime Rubyist from Canberra, Australia, where he lives with his wife and two young children. He's a core team member of the Hanami, DryRB, and ROMRB open source projects and has presented at Ruby conferences all around the world. Tim works as a principal engineer at CultureAmp, a workplace people and culture platform. Greetings, Tim. Hi, it's great to be here. It's great to have you. So Tim, what is your developer origin story? Well, I, I suppose like many folks who end up in this industry, I was, I was lucky to have access to a computer as a, as a young'un, uh, back in the early days of my life, it was mostly about DOS shareware games, but things, things moved on from there and, and I, the internet came around. Uh, we got our first dial-up modem and so on, and I spent a bunch of time fiddling around in front page, uh, making you know funny HTML things. But then in terms of learning how to code, the, the pivotal moment uh, when I was growing up was actually when I got my wisdom teeth removed as a teenager. And as part of uh, a way of aiding my convalescence, um, my mum took me to the news agency and said I could get whatever I wanted. And in those days, they had these little mini magazines with uh, Linux distros uh, attached to them. So I picked up a book uh, with Red Hat 5.2, I think, on the front cover. And that was when I wiped my computer clean, installed Linux, and it was really the, the perfect playground for learning how to code because so many programming languages are available there. So I spent, spent a bunch of time learning PHP uh, and then eventually I found myself in the GNOME project or, or GIMP project chat rooms as like an open source enthusiast, someone who was reinstalling uh, Linux every other month so they could play all the distros. I was, I was very much into what was happening in that scene. Uh, in, the, in that IRC server, there was a, a channel where a bunch of people just created IRC bots for fun. And they did it in the most obscure languages they could find. Uh, and most of the people I met there were writing them in Bash. Now, I wasn't, <laughs> I, I, didn't, <clears throat> I didn't quite feel up to the challenge, but I wanted to do, I wanted to keep in the spirit with it. So I was looking around and I found a language called Ruby. And this was probably back in 2001. So it was before the explosion of popularity and I just got lucky. Uh, made a bot in Ruby, uh, continued to dabble in the language, and then Rails came around, and I really went from there. Um, did some work after uni as a Linux sysadmin, but pretty quickly moved into a job as a developer on Ruby on Rails apps. And then, yeah, since then I wound up running, uh, helping to run a design studio for the last 10 years before I joined CultureAmp, and in that time was when I had sort of took all my experience with Ruby in the early days and worked out what I really wanted to do in this community. And that's how I wound up involved in all the open source projects as well. That's fantastic. And I'm so glad to have you on the show because the next question is one that I get all the time. Mm -hmm. Now, granted, this is the Ruby on Rails podcast, but I would love to know, how would you describe the Hanami framework? Well, I'd, I'd say it's a, a batteries included Ruby web application framework. Uh, if you want to write a web app with Ruby, Hanami would be a great way to do it. Uh, but what makes it different, I suppose, is that as a framework, 
It encourages applications to be built out of small, focused, single responsibility components. So as an example, every URL endpoint in Hanami is represented by a single class. We call them actions. And every view is represented by its own class too. So this kind of demonstrates the way we we like to help application developers break apart their apps. Uh, but there's more than this as well. It also encourages a, a pattern of using callable functional objects as the way of modeling your application behavior out of reusable components while still keeping it easy to follow the flow of data through your application. And the last big thing I think that Hanami does differently to what people might be used to in the Ruby community is that it really encourages a clear separation of persistence logic from your application's business logic. And it does this through using repository classes as the primary way for you to interact with your persistence layer. And these repositories return just plain value objects representing your application's entities. You know, if you're a blog, you know, to be the post and the authors. And because these just hold data and they don't carry an active database connection, it makes it really safe and easy to pass those around your app and, and work with them in whatever layer of, with, of your app how you please without having to worry about uh, inadvertent interactions with the database from, from some far removed place. That makes a lot of sense. So how did you become involved with Hanami? Well, as part of, um, as part of my time running Ice Lab, which was the, the studio I helped run, we, we were a client services agency. And you know, that meant we, we shipped a lot of applications. You know, there's a lot of reps there. We'd, we'd build something, we'd ship it, we'd start again for another client. And you start to see patterns emerge over that time. And naturally, our tool of choice as a, as a Ruby team there was Rails. But I started to see myself getting into the same position again and again uh, with with applications I was shipping, because despite my best intentions about structuring them cleanly and, and so on, when we deliver things under commercial pressure, sometimes you, you make those pragmatic choices to, to help get the thing out the door. And, you know, that was successful. Uh, we built things that worked well for our clients. Uh, you know, they were happy. Uh, our business carried on. But, you know, the, the part of me that takes great pride in how I build things wasn't quite satisfied. So, I started looking around at what else is going on in the Ruby community around the fringes. You know, what are people doing as a reaction to Rails? Uh, what alternative tools are people making? And, and how could these potentially help me and my team build things that we can be really proud of in terms of the process and the structure of the applications? And that's what led me to, to find my now collaborators in the open source world. And I helped. Uh, established the DryRB project, uh, which contains a range of different gems that are all very small and focused around particular tasks. And at ISAB, we cobbled together like an ASARTS framework out of those gems. And we worked with that for several years, and it was really successful. Uh, but over time, uh, we also found that me and my colleagues in DryRB found ourselves in the same orbit as the Hanami team, because our goals are really similar. And after a few years of um, watching each other's work and, and, and talking online, we decided that our goals were so similar that it made sense just to join forces for the next version of Hanami. So that's how I came to be involved there. And our goal for Hanami 2 is to build it on top of a foundation layer built using these other gems, the DryRB gems for the, the application structure and logic and ROMRB for persistence. 
So these gems serve as a foundation layer, and what Hanami is going to do is put a, a bow on top of that and, and make it really accessible, really easy for people to, to use the collection of these gems, build applications uh, following the same philosophies that those gems represent, and hopefully end up with some end results that, as developers, we can be really proud of. That's great. So before we dig into Hanami 2.0, I do want to ask you, what was it like shipping those client projects, knowing that you were using something that was a bit different than, you know, we're all used to legacy Ruby on Rails applications. It's easy to find documentation. So what was the handoff like to for your clients back then? Well, luckily for us, a lot of the times the things we shipped, we also ended up maintaining. So it wasn't like we were embedded in a team and helping boost them across a development effort or two. We'd make the thing from start to finish, and our clients were, were usually quite small. They didn't have their own in-house teams. So we'd build the thing, but then we'd also maintain it. And typically the pattern that that is followed for those things is have you, you have a big spurt during the initial project where you, where you make everything from scratch. Then there's a long, quiet period, and then the clients will come back and say, hey, can you add feature X or Y, or can you extend the way this thing works? And that's when, that's when the sort of maintainability story of of this new approach really shone because, because of the way we structured things into many small components, each with a very clear purpose. It means there was a real sense of having a, a handhold whenever you wanted to get back into an application and make a change in a single place uh, because it's very clear where it's used, very clear what uses it, and it was very clear how things move through those components. So when we wanted to adjust something, uh, we could do it with, with great confidence and make the changes that the clients wanted without any risk of upsetting the behavior in the other parts of the app, which, which can be risky if you have things like uh, domain entities that, that are active record objects, for instance, that are used literally everywhere. So if you make a change to an active record model, you've got to be very careful because it can, it can have far-reaching consequences uh, in, in other parts of the app. That is a really ideal position where you are spinning up applications all the time, but you're also taking on that debt of having to maintain. So it actually makes a lot of sense how you evolved to that position. So what are the main changes we'll be seeing in Hanami 2.0? Well, <clears throat> Hanami is a project that's been around for a long time. Uh, and version one was really the proving ground, I think, for a lot of its core principles. And what we're doing with Hanami 2 is taking the chance to perfect them. And it is an ambitious effort. Uh, it's, it's almost a complete rewrite. And we're taking into account all the lessons we learned along the way uh, from the Hanami team working with people using Hanami 1.0 in the wild, but also the DryRB and ROMRB teams who've, who've learned a lot of lessons about building uh, gems that follow a really strongly functional approach. Um, so along with this rewrite, we are looking to improve the facilities that we're offering to Hanami application authors though. So, one of the big things is that the framework is now being centered around containers as the way of managing application components. And these unlock some really amazing outcomes around how application code is loaded. Uh, we're also providing a way to organize larger applications using a concept we're calling slices. And so these represent the discrete high-level concerns of your application. And it'll let you group the code within those slices and keep them distinct from each other. Rails has its engines analog. This is a little bit different. It's a little bit lighter weight, and it's intended not to be something that you lift out of an application and, and reuse across many. It's meant to be uh, your application code situated in your application, but given some 
organizing tools that let you better address these uh, high-level concerns as particular things within your app. Interesting. So when can we expect a Hanami 2.0 release? Uh, well, we've been hard at work at this for several years now. Um, and I won't lie, it feels like it's been a long time coming. Uh, and I can definitely understand that there might be folks out there who are keen to uh, actually see our work reach this, this release. But one of the things I've, I've come to learn uh, with open source is that for truly community-driven projects, so ones without a corporate sponsor and full-time work, sometimes you just have to accept that things are done when they're done and recognize that that takes however long it takes. Uh, and I think this is especially true in our case where we only have three or four people putting in regular work on Hanami and almost all of that is, ex is exclusively happening alongside their regular jobs and family commitments and, and all those life things. But I think we've come far enough along that I'm feeling pretty confident that the first half of 2021 is looking good for a 2.0 release. Um, well, you heard it here, folks. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm also currently working on the very last thing that we need before we can release the next alpha. We've, we've done one alpha, and that was, that was more than a year ago now. Uh, but alpha 2 is going to unlock all of the things that we've been discussing. Um, and I also want to mention there's a few other really great things that, that will be coming, and these will be in alpha 2. Alpha, yeah, alpha 2. Um, we're bringing in a, a whole new view layer. Um, we're bringing in a rewritten high-performance router. Um, and we're actually decommissioning Hanami's custom model layer, uh, the thing that interacts with the database. And instead, we're promoting ROM as a first-class citizen of Hanami applications. So yeah, there's, there's a ton of stuff coming, and people will be able to start uh, having a play with it pretty soon. So what does the Hanami 1.0 to 2.0 upgrade story look like? Uh, because of the extent of the changes, it's not a, it won't be seamless. There'll be some work required, but we're, we're committed to documenting uh, all the changes. And what I hope is that people who've worked with Hanami 1 for long enough to have meaningful applications in it will really quickly recognize some of the huge benefits that are coming with Hanami 2 and will be able to you know, commit to the work required to, to port the applications. Uh, and for those who are starting fresh, uh, it should just be a really smooth, uh, you know, everything should work very nicely out of the box. So you mentioned a brand new view layer. What's special about it? Well, in Hanami 1, as I mentioned, views are their own classes. Um, we're carrying forward that approach. But here, views are actually callable functional objects. And, and I should take a moment to just explain what that, what that means uh, for those who might not be familiar. So these are... These are classes, they have an initializer, which you don't have to write in most cases, but the initializer exists and it ex exists to accept the dependencies of the class. So these are the other, other components of the application that that class might want to interact with. So if we're building a view for showing an article index, say in the blog example, it's going to accept an article repository as a dependency because it needs to fetch the articles from the database that it wants to show in that view. So they, they go into the initializer as dependencies and they get saved in, in the object state. And then the callable part comes from having a call method on that class, which makes that class behave like a, like a function as an object, really. And what the, what the, in the case of the views, what the call uh, method takes is the parameters. So if it's a paginated article index, it'll take a page parameter. 
and then when the view is called, it really acts as a data transformation. So it takes those parameters and out the other side, or does the work in the middle to render the view, and out the other side, it, it returns you your fully rendered HTML. And because these, uh, in effect, they're stateless objects, they don't, their state doesn't change once they're initialized because those dependencies don't change. It means then they can go on and become dependencies of other parts of the application, which is, which is exactly the pattern that Hanami 2 emphasizes across the board but views are just one instance of this arrangement. Now, we also do a lot more than this in the view layer. Uh, we, we have a notion called exposures for explicitly passing the values that you want to be accessed in your template. In our example, we would have an articles exposure for the, the list of articles. Now, for simple views, you could just stop there. And this, this view layer is designed to be easy to use in that simple case. But for, for those who are building big, complex view layers, it provides a number of additional abstractions that you can unlock when you know you need them. So one example of this is that each exposure, the values that go to your template, it's automatically wrapped in uh, what we call a view part class, uh, which you can customize in your app. So inside these part classes, you can decorate those values with view specific behaviors. So Think about these as decorators, but next level, because they have full access to every aspect of the view system. So everything that you would want to do in a template, you can also do in these part classes as well. And that means that so much more of your view system becomes unit testable, because these part classes, you can, you can initialize in a unit test, test a particular method, uh, and have, that, have confidence that that method will work across the entirety of your view layer, wherever you use it. And because all of this, uh, it's tied together with views as standalone objects, it means you're also not limited to using these just for rendering web pages only. So for instance, I've used these views for rendering emails uh, and even for serializing data for API responses. They're, they're really flexible and they provide a lot of power. This episode of the 5x5 Ruby on Rails podcast is brought to you by Scout APM. Scout APM is application performance monitoring designed to help Rails developers quickly find and fix performance issues without having to deal with the headache or overhead of enterprise platform feature bloat. With the developer-centric UI and tracing logic that ties bottlenecks to source code, Scout helps you quickly pinpoint and resolve performance concerns like N plus one queries, slow database queries, and memory bloat. So you can spend less time debugging and more time building a great product. And with Scout's real-time alerting and weekly digest emails, you can rest easier knowing that Scout's on watch to help you resolve performance issues before your customers ever see them. Give Scout a try today with a free 14-day trial and experience firsthand why Rails developers worldwide call Scout their best friend. And as an added bonus for Ruby on Rails listeners, Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. Learn more at scoutapm.com slash rubyonrails. Thank you to Scout APM for supporting the show. As someone who's recently done a lot of email work, I would definitely enjoy this feature. So yes, I love the idea that it would be so unit testable because that is hard to do in the view layer for sure. Mm. So you mentioned that containers are really integral to Hanami, especially Hanami 2.0. How do containers help with managing those slices? So firstly, well, maybe, maybe I'll touch on slices first because they're kind of tied together. Um, so at, at the core, um, of a Hanami app, each slice really just represents a Ruby module namespace where you want to organize your code. And each one of these slices comes with its own container. But really the most important thing about slices is that they're built in. And so they're available 
for the application author to use right from the start. Now, I'm a big fan of the Majestic Monolith idea, but I think we too often leave it too late before we think about properly modularizing our monoliths. And so slices help you think right from the beginning about how you might want to break your application up into distinct high-level concerns. So for our simple blog application, this might just be a one slice for the public interface and another for the admin area. But really, the sky's the limit. Um, in some applications I've built in this approach, I've had dedicated slices for publicly exposed APIs, for private you know, back office APIs, for a slice for rendering uh, transactional emails, uh, a slice for managing our search engine, a slice for running offline data processing, really uh, anything you can imagine as a distinct thing you can package up in a slice. And this starts to make a lot more sense when you realize that slices can actually import each other. So they can refer to another slice if it's something, if it represents a facility it needs to use. So you end up forming a graph of your application's high-level concerns, which is a really useful way to think about its responsibilities and a really helpful way for someone to come into a, a new application and get a sense for the lay of the land, for what is actually responsible uh, to do. So given we have these slices as this abstraction around the high-level concerns in the app, uh, what the containers do inside each slice is, is offer a way to organize the components uh, on an individual component by component level. Uh, which, and those components, it's the, it's the, let me start again. <laughs> All right. So with slices, we have this abstraction for working with the high level concerns and the relationships between them within your application. But each slice itself contains a container and the container does that job for the individual components within the slice. It organizes those. And you can think of these containers kind of like a big registry where you fetch pre-built instances of any of the classes in your application uh, with each one of those instances being available by its own container identifier. So talking about our blog, say we had a repository for articles. Well, it its class would be article repository and its identifier would be the same, article repository, but just underscored instead of camel cased. And these identifiers are really handy because you can use them with a dependencies mix-in that we provide as a standard part of the framework. So say, so it allows you, just like we talked with views, to include any other uh, component within your slice as a dependency of that class. So you can include this mix-in, uh, we call it depths. Uh, so you can include depths, you can pass it the user repository container identifier, and suddenly the user repository then becomes available for you to use within your class. So this makes dependency injection a really low friction way of working and a really easy way to, to use across all of your application's classes. And I know this, even this term itself has a funny history with, within Ruby, dependency injection. For, for, for years and years when I was just writing applications in, in, in Rails, um, before I got involved in this open source stuff, um, you know, I'd, I'd read Sandy Metz's book, like everyone else, um, and she recommends DI as a, as a helpful way to bring together various collaborating objects to express some complex high-level behavior. And I'd read, that, I'd read that sort of overview of the approach, and, uh, and in the moment, I think to myself, yes, like, this is how I want to build applications. But then I'd go back to the code bases I had at hand, and I just have no idea how to, 
how to pull that technique off, given the facilities that I was working with. It just didn't seem possible within Rails. And so I'd go back to the old way of doing things, just referring directly to classes all over the shop, um, not having any consistency in the way I in the way I pulled in different parts of my app, and, and I just kind of felt bad about it. Um, but with the way we had things set up for Hanami 2, we finally have a framework that makes the easy thing to do also the right thing to do here. Um, we're creating a pit of success, and I, and I think it'll really help people change the way they think about their code. And it's not only about this, uh, this concept of dependencies. The containers provide so much more as well, because because when they serve as central organizing facilities, other possibilities become available, like advanced code loading. So say you have an application, this one's been around for a while, it might have 1,000, 2,000 components in it, and you just want to add a unit test for a single one of those. Well, since we have that mix-in for providing the dependencies from the container for a given class, for your unit test, all you have to do is require the file for that one class, uh, initialize it, and then through the container uh, resolution process, it will load exactly the smallest subset of other components within your application required to do its job. Even if some of those components have special life cycles, like establishing a connection to a database. So this means you, you have, might have these thousands of files in your application, but when you're going into the, the TDD cycle for a single component, it remains really fast because it's not having to load the whole framework it's not having to load the entirety of your application because you wanted to touch one aspect of the database. It's always going to load the smallest number of files. And that's how you keep your, your test cycle fast and responsive. And it's how you end up designing better things because if something's easily testable, it's generally uh, good and flexible to use within your application. And this same approach applies for the console too. So no matter how large your application is, a Hanami 2 console is going to get you at an interactive prompt in less than a second in constant time, every time. So this arrangement allows applications to grow large gracefully without developers getting bogged down with boot time delays and having to put on all those different band-aids to try and make them better in daily use. And it's when you get rid of those frustrations that you can apply more thought to how how better to design the, the, the things that you're building within your application. And this is, I think, going to be a really positive feedback cycle that we can help introduce to Ruby developers on large applications for the first time. And then if we, if we loop back to the slices, they also provide a clean hook for whether or not you want to load entire sections of your application code. So this means if you've got a whole bunch of uh, slices that are for just a certain set of background jobs or just some, just some processing that you do via rake tasks every now and then, because they have those uh, separations, it means that when you boot your web uh, process for your application, well, you can choose not to load those slices at that time, which means you have a lower memory uh, deployment profile. It means your application can run faster. It means that you can still situate your code in the same place as your application grows, but not get bogged down by everything sort of interrelating all the time and becoming this tangled mess. And, and this is the real recipe, I think, and the real exciting formula for making the majestic monolith true, you know? Uh, majestic modular monolith is, is an actual possible thing without people having to devise their own approaches and, and feel like they're out there um, on their own because we'll have a whole community of people working behind these shared approaches and people can feel confident that 
what works for one shop will work for another and it's going to be useful in whatever app they build. So the intention is the slice to always stay internally in the application. You never intend for it to be pulled out and be a dependency in many applications? I, I would think carefully before doing that. It's definitely not our goal right now. Um, I wouldn't rule it out. Uh, there might be a way for us to come up with something similar to the Rails engine concept, which is you know used by gems like Devise and other things that might need to expose uh, you know controller actions and routes and so on. But right now, our focus is on making these a really helpful, uh, a really helpful utility within applications, and we're, we're focused on that area first. And I'm sure once this gets out, um, people will have people use them in ways we don't expect, and we'll learn a lot from that process. And we want to make sure that they stay really well situated within apps before we think about you know how we might level up. So Tim, what does the Hanami 2.0 feedback loop look like? Are you depending on forums or people opening issues? Like how well do you know the, I guess, customers who are currently going to be using it? Uh, we're kind of in an interesting position right now, at least in terms of the transition from one to two. Uh, there's certainly established places uh, for feedback. We have, a, we have a forum powered by Discourse. We, there's a Gitter chat room. Although I think we're going to encourage the, the forum to be used more because I think it's, there's more long-term value in forums uh, than in ephemeral chat. Uh, so that's really the extent of the community uh, sort of interaction points. And of course, people file issues on GitHub uh, if they have problems with any of the gems. But right now, we're in this period where a lot of time has been spent on prepping 2.0 and we're yet to get to the point where it's ready for folks to use. But that's why I think we're just around the corner here with the next alpha, because that's when I'm, I'm going to package up a, a nice set of release notes. Um, one of the other core team members, uh, Piotr Sonica, who was on, on your podcast a few episodes ago, he's been doing some YouTube videos introducing an application template that I made for people who might want to start with Hanami 2. So there are a few ways for the, the super keen to, to start learning things, but I think we'll, we'll We'll get to the point soon where the next version will start entering that happy feedback loop where it's seeing wider spread usage and, and we'll get the learnings from that. That's fantastic. It, it sounds like such a loyal and excited community. We talked about this, like as you mentioned a couple episodes ago, but it, it feels that Hinami is invigorating a part of the community that we worried about losing. And so I don't know if you would like to touch upon, you know, how that has kept you in the Ruby community. Yeah, uh, I really strongly believe that we need diversity in, in technical communities for them to thrive. And for Ruby, it means providing alternatives beyond the elephant in the room, which is, which is Rails. And you know, I'm, I'm super grateful for Rails. It's how I got my first job as a developer. Uh, it's still an amazingly productive tool for so many people. It's helped so many people become programmers for the first time. And so it's whatever, whatever confluence of events uh, led to Rails, I'm so glad they happened. Uh, but the way I see uh, my, myself in the Ruby community is, is, like you say, providing some alternative tools for those who don't necessarily think like or want to work within the rails way uh and if we didn't if we didn't provide those alternatives we'd just lose those community members and ruby itself is is an amazing language 
uh, I haven't found anything else that that haven't found any other language that helps people so easily express different ideas. It's what's helping us build Hanami and all the underpinning tools. And by packaging these up and making these as accessible tools for people in the community, it means that we can keep the community growing. It means that we can learn a whole different set of experiences from people building and maintaining apps using a different set of tools. If you think about all the literature or blog posts out there for how to grow Ruby applications, they're all hugely Rails-centric because that's the tool people are using. But there could be approaches that, that work really well that we're yet to discover or yet to hear good real-world experiences about because all the experiences have been sort of within this one category. And by providing another category, we're keeping open the possibilities for new approaches to build and maintain applications that could work well for a growing number of Rubyists in the future. This episode of the 5x5 Ruby on Rails podcast is brought to you by Linode. Simplify your infrastructure and cut your cloud bills in half with Linode's Linux virtual machines. Develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and easier. Whether you're developing a personal project or managing larger workloads, you deserve simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions. Get started on Linode today with $100 in free credit for listeners of the Ruby on Rails podcast. You can find all the details at linode.com slash Ruby on Rails. Linode has data centers around the world with the same simple and consistent pricing regardless of location. Choose the data center nearest to you. You will also receive 24-7, 365 human support with no tiers or handoffs regardless of your plan size. You can choose shared and dedicated compute instances, or you can use your $100 in credit on S3-compatible object storage, manage Kubernetes, and more. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. Visit linode.com slash rubyonrails and click on the Create Free Account button to get started. Thanks to Linode for supporting the show. Is the intention whenever Hanami 2.0 comes out that if you came up with any sort of business idea that you would normally do in Ruby on Rails, that Hanami 2.0 could, could get you there. Is there any situation where you should use Ruby on Rails instead, or really it will be interchangeable with Hanami? Well, I think if, if you're planning to work on something for more than a few weeks, then you, you can pick either. Uh, you know, the, the goal with Hanami is for it to be a full stack, it helps you with every aspect of your application kind of framework. Uh, but you know, we need to recognize that Rails has a, a huge community, a huge ecosystem of plugins and, and all those sorts of things, uh, learning resources, etc. So if you're, if you're brand new to programming and, and wanting, to, wanting to get started, then you know, Rails may be a better choice because of the learning resources. Uh, if you're wanting to be productive enough such that you've shipped something within the first two days, uh, sure, Rails probably get you help, help you get there more quickly, which is sometimes it's worth sacrificing a little bit of upfront setup cost to get long-term maintenance benefits. And someone coming to Hanami for the first time, if they're an experienced enough Rubyist, they'll still get started pretty quickly, but they might take a handful of days instead of one or two days to get to the same point, you know, when they're doing their first application in Hanami. But what I think Hanami encourages is, is making the easy way within the framework of doing anything also the right way for long-term maintenance. 
and you know everything we've talked about in terms of say dependency injection uh, and single responsibility components and uh, value objects as the way of, of passing things throughout the app those are things that have huge long-term benefits and by taking the time to to get to know the way they work I think you come up with um, you'll come up trumps in the long term I love that so how can listeners support you and Hanami? Uh, for the for the 2.0 effort, I think right now uh, the best thing to do would be to hang tight, wait for an announcement in January about the next alpha. But from that point, we'd really love feedback from uh, early testing with the new range of gems. And you know, they'll we I already have several at, at my work. We have several Hanami 2.0 applications in production. Uh, so these these gems are ready if you're willing to put in. Uh, put in the effort to just understand how they all fit together uh, while we're still preparing documentation. So there's there's the opportunity there for people to start trying them. Uh, then if you're super keen and you're looking for a way to even pitch in, uh, a great way would be to stay on top of the pull requests that are coming through GitHub. You know, Go to the Hanami organization, watch the repositories and, and see what comes in. Everything that I'm doing, for instance, is via a pull request with a review cycle and so on. So. It's a good way to see how the, the framework uh, for 2.0 is coming together piece by piece. And from, by doing that, you might actually notice some opportunities to uh, help out. Yeah, for me, I would love to put a call out to listeners to start talking about Hanami 2.0. You know, certainly don't pressure the team, but be excited. Talk about it. Overall, like the Ruby community needs to talk more about the things that are going on. I'd like to see 2.0 get as much hype as Rails 6. So if we can match that enthusiasm, I think it would be it would benefit the entire community. So, Tim, I always ask this, but what are your thoughts on the future of the Ruby and Hanami communities? Well, I'm super excited about the future of Ruby, particularly now where, what are we, two days away from the 3.0 release? Um, we sure are. So that's, that's really, it's a really exciting time to be part of Ruby, uh, I think. And, you know, it's been a productive environment for a very long time now. It's a mature ecosystem. And I think the Ruby core team seems to have struck a good balance between compatibility and forward motion. Uh, and, and some of the new things are really exciting for the way we've been building uh, our gems and our framework in the Hanami and, and Drive E world. Uh, because a lot of the new language features gel really nicely with those ideas. Uh, our, our Monads library, for instance, works just beautifully with the, the new pattern matching that came in with 2.7 and, and has been improved with 3.0. And with the way we've been so conscious with our gems to center... Uh, to center their design around data flowing through immutable objects, I think there's some really great opportunities for us to take advantage of some of the new concurrency features. So I'm keen to have a play with that once we've, once we've done the work of, of getting the big release out the door. Uh, I think we could really power up the gems and get some good performance improvements. As, as for Hanami and the community around Hanami in general, yeah, I'm just excited for us to provide a full and compelling alternative to Rails. Uh, you know, like we talked about, the, the, the most important flourishing, sustainable communities are the diverse ones. And even though, you know, these gems have been out there for years, the, the dry RB gems in particular 
have been there and, and working well for people in production for many years, but they've always kind of been advanced users who've picked them up. With, with Hanami 2, we're skewing away from that. We'll, we'll, we'll have a framework that's so much more accessible, and I think that's going to be really exciting because we'll be able to see people do really interesting things with it and hopefully improve their, their lives as, as developers in, in the Ruby ecosystem. Well, we will have to have you back on the show whenever the release is out. So, so excited for that to happen. Tim, how can listeners follow you? Uh, well, I'm on Twitter and GitHub as Tim Riley. Uh, I also have a personal website, timriley.info. And for the last, well, nearly 10 or 11 months, I've been writing monthly open source updates as blog posts on that site. So to people interested in Hanami 2, that would also be a great way to follow along because... I'm taking the time there each month to actually explain the rationale between behind some of the really minuscule decisions that that I'm making in how the the framework hangs together, and that would give you a sense for not only the details, uh, because it's the it's the accumulation of those details that that make up the larger framework, but also the philosophy behind them, and that some of the ideas that. Uh, behind the decisions we make in building the framework, well, those are the same ideas that can help you make better decisions when you build applications. So uh, I've enjoyed uh, committing to that monthly cadence and, and taking that opportunity to get some of this written down because otherwise it would all be lost. It would be a blur. Uh, so please, I'd love people to follow along there um, and and follow up with me. If, if any of those ideas are interesting to you, hit me up on Twitter. I'd love to enter into discussions about this stuff. I can personally vouch for those posts. They're incredibly well-written. You can really get a great insight into what you're thinking. So we'll definitely link those in the show notes. Tim, thank you so much for all the contributions you've made into the community. And cheers to the future Hanami 2.0. Thanks for having me. And uh, I'm looking forward to the bright new future. You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 network. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review, and thank you for listening.